You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Listen, I was very proud of my friend, Congressman Gary Palmer of Alabama. Um, As the appropriations bills are going through Congress, that is your money, your tax dollars hemorrhaging out of your pocket. And to uh, anyone and everyone who can get their mouth in the federal trough saddled up there, um, Palmer pointed out that apparently there's a massive appropriation going out to the EPA or was going out to the EPA um, to give them tons of your money to purchase more guns, bullets, and military-style equipment. Quote, to me, this sounds like we're arming a SEAL team. Palmer told the colleagues, the difference is the SEAL team can explain why they need these things and the EPA cannot. This amendment passed, thank God, but it's already too late uh, for a hundred and some other federal agencies who have received over $2.7 billion in appropriations, your money, to arm themselves to the teeth, including with anti-tank missiles. Why would federal agencies need this? Openthebooks.com has the facts. But I want you to listen to this debate between Gary Palmer, uh, again from Alabama, advancing the amendment. And then, of course, the Democrats select someone to give their little prepared statement for why he's wrong. And then it rebuts back or goes back to uh, Gary Palmer for the rebuttal. So let's play that because this is the juicy stuff that happens all the time on the House floor that you never see and that no one wants you to see. But I want you to hear this. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Alabama. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, spends as much as $50 million a year to employ nearly 200 armed agents at an average cost of $260,000 per year per agent. The American people would likely be disturbed to hear that. According to the nonprofit Open the Books, the EPA has spent millions of dollars over the years on anti-tank ammunition, amphibious salt craft, night vision equipment, unmanned aircraft, and other military equipment. It's difficult for me to imagine that the EPA has a legitimate use for anti-tank ammunition. To me, this sounds like we're arming a SEAL team. The difference is a SEAL team can explain why they need these things. The EPA cannot. These agents have been involved in raids in Alaska, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, Massachusetts, North Carolina, and in my own state of Alabama. In Alaska, EPA agents wearing flak jackets and carrying long guns showed up to review paperwork at a family-owned mining operation. In my home state of Alabama, armed EPA agents took over two waste treatment facilities in Dothan, Alabama. These agents were posted at each entrance to the plant and recorded identification information on all those going in and going out. The EPA has just, is just one of more than 70 federal agencies that employed armed personnel, many of which most Americans would never associate with law enforcement. I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate whether arming the bureaucracy is the best way to ensure that our laws are enforced. Federal agencies should be able to demonstrate their need for armed personnel and absent such a demonstration should rely on and partner with local, state, or federal law enforcement when there's a need for armed protection. The gentleman reserves. For what purpose does the gentlewoman from Maine seek recognition? I claim time in opposition to this amendment. The gentlewoman is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I strongly oppose this amendment that would cripple the EPA's ability to exercise its criminal enforcement function by preventing the EPA criminal enforcement from being able to issue warrants, make arrests, or carry firearms. 
I'm truly befuddled by this attack on law enforcement. The majority's disdain for the EPA has been evident throughout the debate of this bill, but this amendment is beyond the pale. I cannot understand how anyone would think it is a good idea to give a pass to criminals who deliberately break the law. The EPA's criminal enforcement function is a vital part of our efforts to help protect the environment and safeguard the public health. But it's important to recognize that it is only one part of these efforts. The fact is that EPA's compliance and enforcement process is a multi-step process that uses criminal law enforcement only as a last resort. EPA initially provides compliance assistance to help the regulated community understand and comply with regulations. EPA compliance monitoring then subsequently assesses compliance through inspections and other activities. Enforcement actions are initiated only when the regulated community does not comply or when cleanup is required. Criminal actions are usually reserved for the most serious violations, those that are willful or knowingly committed. But the mere threat of criminal action can and does help ensure compliance. If this irresponsible amendment passes and we remove the threat of criminal action, we will inevitably see a decline in willful compliance of our environmental laws. That would be bad news for all of us, as the quality of our air and water and the public health will inevitably suffer. As to the issue of EPA personnel carrying firearms, I would point it out that, over, that more than 70 federal agencies employ law enforcement officers who are authorized to carry firearms and make arrests in the United States, including the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, the Food and Drug Administration, the Tennessee Valley Authority. The EPA is hardly unique in this regard. Make no mistake, this amendment is clearly anti-law enforcement. It cripples the ability of EPA to ensure enforcement of our environmental laws and will inevitably lead to even more harm to public health. Let's ensure that the EPA can continue to enforce our nation's environmental standards. I urge the defeat of this amendment, and I yield back. The gentlewoman reserves. The gentleman from the gentle, gentlewoman yields. The gentleman from Alabama is recognized. Thanks, Chairman. I'm stunned to hear the response to this uh, coming from the other side that uh, supports defunding the police. Uh, what we want to do is have proper law enforcement enforcing our laws and not uh, weaponizing the entire federal bureaucracy against the citizens of the United States. I can't imagine why the EPA would need anti-tank ammunition to enforce the laws of the EPA. Uh, we've seen what, what this leads to in, in, in multiple examples, which I will not go into at this point. The cl uh, critics claim, though, that my amendment would put EPA personnel at risk of harm. That would be wrong. My amendment would, does not permit the EPA from using funds to provide security for its personnel or its property. Uh, it does not prohibit training of EPA security or law enforcement personnel either. My amendment would prohibit funding for the EPA's armed and militarized agents who have a history of intimidating Americans by conducting aggressive raids and begin to address the troubling trend of militarization of our federal agencies. I urge my colleagues to support the amendment. And I yield back. Okay, so there you have it. That is Congressman Gary Palmer making some common sense arguments and Shelley Pingree uh, saying this beyond the pale, that he doesn't want the EPA to have anti-tank equipment. Why? Because some people won't comply, she said. What if they won't comply? This is about compliance. We can inspect paperwork, Okay.
All right, let me just give you uh, from Open the Books a very quick bird's eye view of what we're talking about. 103 federal agencies outside of the Department of Defense, okay, this is not the Pentagon, spent $2.7 billion on guns, ammo, and military-style equipment between 2006 and 2019. Let me tell you that after 2019 exploded. And in fact, I wrote to the people that opened the books. They're probably the best organization in the world for tracking taxpayer-funded spending out of the federal government. I asked them, I want to see the information for 2020 and forward, because this report they put out is only to 2019. But I've seen informally and printed in other places that the spending has exploded. Now we know why. You couldn't buy ammunition for the first couple of years of the Biden administration. Did you notice that? You go online, there are all kinds of places to buy ammo online, everywhere. They're all out. You couldn't even get nine millimeter basic, basic ammo, or, or like, you know, 20 gauge shotgun ammo, the most basic stuff. You're just wanting to, you know, uh, hunt varmints and vermin. There are people who still supplement their their food bill with uh, shooting squirrels and rabbits, but you couldn't even get that online. Now we know why. Apparently, there are now more federal officers with arrest and firearm authority. That's 200,000 than U.S. Marines. There are 182,000 of those. And that was in 2019. I'm telling you, it's worse now. It's worse now. Again, 103 federal agencies, $2.7 billion. We're talking about, you know, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, the, the Animal Health Inspection Service, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Small Business Administration. Why do they need guns and ammo? If there's a problem at their offices, why don't they just call law enforcement like everyone else? Why do they need this? You know, I would understand it for the FBI, Border Patrol, uh, or anyone in Homeland Security. It's, it's hard enough to trust them to behave themselves. But how about the EPA? Um, apparently, they have state-of-the-art training facilities for like HHS, Health and Human Services. Are you kidding me? Right outside the Beltway? What are they really doing? Uh, the EPA has night vision, uh, armor, tactical sets, kits and outfits, basically just about everything you can imagine, unmanned aircraft, body armor, mobile GPS monitors. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I could go on and on, but you can find all of this at openthebooks.com. It is shocking. You know what? When we get a, a, a new president, I believe that we should sell all of this stuff off to the citizenry and take the money from the sales and pay off the national debt. Or you know what? A tax break. Even better. Give the people their money back. This is an outrage and it is not safe to have the federal government so armed to the teeth to enforce IRS regulations. Give me a break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. 
You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Listen, I enjoy reading Holman Jenkins at the Wall Street Journal. He's really great on climate issues. And if I don't say so myself, uh, he needs to stick with climate issues. He's really bad at election issues. Uh, otherwise, he's a very exacting, uh, very precise person. He, he had a column, uh, the earth is warming, but is CO2 the cause? And I thought it was really great. And as he says, he's constantly repeating himself. But he says this, um, evidence of warming is not evidence of what causes warming. How obvious is that? It's worth repeating. He repeats it all the time. Evidence of warming is not evidence of what causes warming. So you won't find many people who will dispute that the earth has warmed over the last 200 years. You will find some people who will dispute that it's warmed over the past 20 years, at least consistently. But the point here is, look, just because you have, you have identified a trend doesn't mean we have the cause. And he points to a report by two retired experts out of Norway, which has called forth so many, quote, shrieked accusations of climate apostasy. So therefore, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'll say, you know, these guys have basically said that, uh, or really just ask a question, are computerized climate simulations a sufficient basis for attributing warming to human-caused CO2? That's it, okay? The conclusion was, <clears throat> with the current level of knowledge, it seems impossible to determine how much of the temperature increase is due to emissions of CO2. Again, these are two of the experts out of Norway who are retired. I will tell you, I always trust the retired guys a lot more than the guys who are in the seats right now because their careers are on the line. Their careers are on the line. So, It's very hard for people with mortgages and kids in college and bills to pay to speak their mind. What if they're punished? The retired guys don't care. Their retirement is locked in. And I'll say something even more bold, and I hope no one takes this offensively because I actually don't mean it offensively at all. You never know who, I'm serious, has been pronounced uh with a terminal illness or, or, or declared to have a terminal illness. Now, example, one of the frequent guests on my show for years was Dr. Peter Pry. Dr. Pry used to be at the CIA. He eventually went to Capitol Hill. He was the executive director of the Congressional EMP Task Force, uh, which was charged with a very controversial and high-risk task, which was trying to figure out just how vulnerable our electric grid is to our foreign enemies and how to, how to prevent a problem, an attack. Um, little did I know, when he was on the show for the last two years, that he was pronounced terminally ill with stage four cancer. I didn't know that. And he didn't tell anyone. But I noticed, I mean, he was always bold. He was always bold and, and a courageous guy. But there toward the end, man, he didn't hold back. He would say whatever he thought. He would point the finger at whoever he wanted to. I don't care. Their reputation for assassinations and kidnappings and horrible behavior and putting yourself at risk and putting your career at risk. He knew that his days were limited. 
and nobody was going to get to him before cancer did, probably. And he just spoke very freely. And I love that. A lot of truth comes out when people know they're facing the final curtain, right? So the fact that these scientists are retired, frankly, right away, my trust level goes up a little bit. I always want to hear from the retired guys and compare it to the current narrative. So I will point out to um, the fact that the correlation versus causation question was raised is pretty old. As these guys didn't invent it, uh, as is pointed out here. Holman uh, <laughs> Shake says a great way with words. He says, quote, but unrestrained name calling is required, the critics say, because anything that undermines confidence in climate models undermines progress against climate change, which made him laugh. He asked, what progress? Uh, you know, you equate skepticism with Holocaust denial. And according to Mr. Jenkins, that is the most failed salesmanship strategy in public policy history. Now, that's only partially true. I don't believe that's true outside of the United States. We have a lot of people in this country who don't just swallow face value that narrative. Um, But, you know, if you pay attention to Europe, especially, um, or Australia, or other Western countries, they have bought it. And I'll tell you why. They don't have a free press. You, you, You take for granted what you have as an American. What we have here is very special, very unique. Yes, there is some conservative press in the UK. There is. But it's um, under a lot more pressure than we are. And we're under pressure here. There's a little bit in Canada that I'm aware of. But if you look across the globe, even in what are considered to be free countries, Europe, I mean, Europe lost it a long time ago, actually. They may have free speech on the law books, but it's quite a different issue. It was obvious when I've traveled there, and I have these discussions often, uh, I try very hard to understand and, and persuade Europeans. Um, they have no concept of what free speech is. And if you ask them, okay, you want to ban this very ugly thing over here that someone said and even put them in jail, how can you justify that? How is that legal in a free speech country? You know what they'll say? It's not nice. It's not nice. And you ask yourself, okay, have they thought this through for five minutes? It's very obvious that they're not taught free speech in school. It's not part of the culture. They don't have schoolyards like we have in back in the 80s, at least. I remember kindergarten, right? If someone said something you didn't like, you'd say, shut up. And they'd say, I don't have to. It's a free country. I must have heard that 5,000 times on the schoolyard, like yard, Uh, in the 80s. Do kids say that anymore? Probably not. What I'm saying, it's just not part of the culture, even in places where it's enshrined in their supreme law of the land, unfortunately. So uh, back to the climate models. Apparently, uh, they are based on disparate instruments and a variety of proxies for time and place when no measurements were taken. Right? So how can they be accurate. 
Um, this I did not know. And again, crediting Holman Jenkins. He says, before 2015, he previously noted the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA, reported that 2005 and 2010 were equally warm to the second decimal. By 2015, the record was changed to claim that 2010 was warmer than 2005. These adjustments are common, and those Norwegian scientists pointed out the obvious, quote, it is impossible to evaluate the validity of such administrative changes for an outside user of these records, meaning they can't test that. And they're Norwegian scientists. If they can't test it, can you? Can I? Who can? So apparently, back in 2017, an independent researcher named Marsha Wyatt showed 16 of these revisions had been made to long past temperature record in just the previous three years. Whoa. Did you hear that? 16 revisions made to temperature records in the previous three years. Okay, if this were not clown world, that would be all you'd need to know to stop listening. If that's true, you don't even need to think about this anymore. They're covering up the data. Again, I'm pulling this from an article by Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal. You can look it up for yourself. It's titled, The Earth is Warming, But Is CO2 the Cause? Because of these kinds of adjustments, your government, which has its climate kind of repository for information at the NOAA, can constantly claim this is the hottest year on record. This is the hottest month. They could not make those claims without these adjustments. So Jenkins says, um, beyond hysteria, the no longer plausible idea that ritually attacking Every expression of skepticism moves the ball on climate policy. You're not accomplishing anything by attacking people like me or Holman Jenkins or this lady, Marsha Wyatt, or these two Norwegian scientists. We're not getting anywhere, but what it does do is help to prop up corporate welfare. That is the substitute for climate action. Love this column. Hey, why wait till the fourth column of the article to tell us that? That's exactly what this is. These rituals of denunciation help prop up the green corporate welfare that has become the substitute for climate action. And there you have it. I mean, you know, normal people ask, well, why would we be saying things that weren't true and and doing all this policy and appropriations for things that weren't real? Well, answer, because people make a lot of money. Okay, so... I didn't, I, I didn't learn uh, this until this article, too. NASA scientist James Hansen, whose name constantly comes up when you see debunking articles. Um, <clears throat> there are many of them out there. Just Google him. You'll see. Um, says that warming will be worse for one strange reason. Our success in reducing particulate exhaust from vehicles has reduced the atmospheric aerosols that slow warming. Do you see how crazy this is getting? 
We reduce particulate matter, the one kind of pollution that actually causes serious health problems, cardiopulmonary problems. And now he's complaining about that because they actually slowed global warming. if If it isn't one thing, it's quite the opposite on the way. All right. I hope that cheered you up. Of all the things you have to worry about watching the news, CO2 from your exhaust pipe is not one of them. Feel better? You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'll take a break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Listen, I want to encourage you to check out the Underreported Story Society, which is run by Phelan McAleer and Ann McElhaney. They are wonderful reporters who tell you stories you can't get anywhere else, and I've supported their work for years. I had Phelan on the show years ago when he released the documentary Frack Nation, which is amazing. Frack Nation blows open uh, all of the critics of fracking and, and tells you the truth about their claims. It's very funny. If you haven't seen it, check it out online. But today, they're covering the defamation trial, or non-trial, uh, against Mark Stein, the Canadian comedian uh, who took on Michael Mann, the scientist who had that very famous hockey stick graph about global warming. So essentially, it shows like global warming being flat for a long time and then skyrocketing after the Industrial Revolution. Apparently, Stein essentially said the guy was dishonest and said about debunking this very famous hockey stick graph on which so much public policy and debate is based. So he got sued by Michael Mann for saying he was dishonest. This defamation trial has been going on for 12 years. 12 years. Do you know what that cost? But what I want you to pay attention to today is I'm going to play for you uh, based on some things that Ann and Phelan um, shared. Uh, excerpts from, from Mark Stein's deposition in this case. And I want you to pay close attention. If you're ever deposed... Please be taking notes on how Mark Stein handles his cross-examination by Michael Mann's lawyer. I thought it was awesome. I'm just going to play a few very brief excerpts for you. See what you think. Uh, Well, in your article, Supervilling, you do refer to Michael Mann as a litigious dweeb. I think we should note for the record that I say he's an insecure, litigious dweeb whose principal skills are blocking, banning, and hysterically shrieking that Amazon.com cracked down on any reviewers insufficiently fawning in their reviews of his book. Great answer. Great answer. Right? Do you see how he made them pay just for asking the question? (laughs) I don't recommend this in criminal actions. Only civil litigation, okay? This is not a criminal prosecution of Mark Stein. This is a civil lawsuit. Okay, let's take another clip. And the position that it's fraudulent, sir, uh, you have written many times, you stand by that position, correct? Yes, I think think, uh, its fraudulence became more uh, evident so that when Harold Lewis, um, the... uh, very distinguished American physicist, called it the greatest pseudo-scientific fraud of my lifetime. And I believe he was uh, uh, well into his 80s by then. He was certainly uh, getting up there. Um, When uh, Ivor Jiver, the uh, Nobel laureate, genuine Nobel laureate, not a poser fraud laureate like your client, 
When Ivor Jiva said it was the emperor's new clothes of science, um, when, uh, when uh, Rob Wilson, a uh, Scottish climate scientist, described it at a public meeting as a crock of, as a quote, crock of... Uh, when Jonathan Jones at Oxford University called it obvious drivel, um, these guys were reacting as much, not, uh, not just to the fact that, as Professor Jones says, the hockey stick is obvious drivel, but also to the fact that uh, when, uh, when its flaws were pointed out, man uh, obfuscated, doubled down on them, and at that point made it clear uh, that these were not innocent mistakes. Okay, so there's the response to his uh, allegation. Do you really think this is fraudulent? All right. Apparently, there has been, as I mentioned in this segment about um, Holman Jenkins' article, allegations that data has been changed midpoint, right, in the middle of a study to make things turn out the way they want. Here is what... Mark Stein had to say about that in his deposition. You have uh, things that are, uh, I regard as patently absurd, and man, presumably, as a trained scientist, uh, cannot not have known this, which is that, for example, the famous tree in the Gaspé Peninsula, an area I know uh, very well in Quebec, I've been going there all my life, and I, lo- uh, and I, uh, and I love it, and I was astonished to find that uh, basically uh, for one year in the hockey stick, man relies on one tree in the Gaspé Peninsula. Now, this tree cannot even tell the weather in the Gaspé Peninsula. Uh, so the tree is useless for telling you what the temperature is in, uh, in uh, the Gaspé. Uh, but we are expected to believe, and we are expected to believe that man believes, uh, that uh, the uh, tree in the gas bay, which can't tell you the temperature in the gas bay, can somehow tell you the temperature for Paris and Rome and Berlin and St. Petersburg. And uh, that, I, uh, I do not honestly think you can regard that as a good faith error. Okay. And then uh, moving on to the credentials. He made a reference earlier to uh, what is a real... Nobel laureate versus what is not. And here are his representations about um, the the credentials uh, that apparently pro- did not prove out uh, for his accuser. On to exhibit 43. <clears throat> sir, that you have also called Dr. Mann a serial liar. Well, I think when you lie continuously about something as extraordinary as being a Nobel laureate, uh, which has been going on for a little over a century, uh, so there are actually at any one time only a few dozen genuine Nobel laureates on the planet, and yet you uh, misrepresent yourself as a Nobel laureate. That is basically a core definition of academic misconduct. Uh, and I equate it to the equivalent of, uh, uh, of stolen valor by people who never anywhere near a battlefield, but pretending to have been in the thick of it 
uh, on D-Day or in Vietnam or wherever. So I think that's a fairly substantive thing. He knows he's not a Nobel laureate because to be a Nobel laureate, you get given a medal by the King of Sweden or the King of Norway. So if you've never been in the presence of their respective majesties, you know pretty well you're not a Nobel laureate. So this is, to me, when you do it on the scale that man did and continues to do, notwithstanding your amended statement of claim, Councillor, I think that is actually is uh, pretty much qualifies for serial lying. You have called him a serial liar, correct? Correct. Mr. Stein, you also refer to uh, Michael Mann as a thorough top-to-toe fraud, correct? Well, uh, as you know, I did not call man a fraud in football and hockey. I said the hockey stick was fraudulent. In the uh, days, months, and years afterwards, uh, one is shocked to discover that the Nobel laureate thing, which, as I said, is as about a grotesque and brazen fraud as one can imagine, uh, purporting to be among the few dozen living persons who have won Nobel Prizes for their science. Uh, that is a serious fraud. So there you have some of the highlights uh, from Mark Stein's deposition uh, in his 12-year trial now um, with scientist Michael Mann. Obviously, this has not been worked out um, to its end. It's still postponed. We still don't have a conclusion, which is an outrage. I'm always suspicious of anything legal that doesn't end after 12 flipping years. How's that possible? Uh, it almost suggests that maybe the judge doesn't want a conclusion in the case. Um, you can find this in Stein Online. Stein Online. This is Mark Stein's website. Um, S-T-E-Y-N. And just take a look at that. Um, it's very entertaining. I commend it to your listening Got to get a break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Find me at JackieDaly.com. That's Jackie with no E, daily like every day. And on the X at Jackie Daly Host. And subscribe for free anywhere that quality podcasts are found. Okay. If you haven't heard of the film Miracle in East Texas... Miracle in East Texas. I recommend you run out to see this film. It is in theaters right now. It is featuring Kevin Sorbo and his wife, Sam. Uh, He is the director. They are producers. And of course, he's the lead actor. Uh, This is out of Sorbo Studios. This is a film described by movieguide.com, which you should check out if you're looking for family-friendly films. Uh, they describe it as funny, emotional, and redemptive. Although caution is advised for older children and sensitive adults because of the content. Uh, the story sounds great. Basically, this is about two con men out in the oil patch uh, in Oklahoma and Texas back during the Great Depression, so the 1930s. Essentially, they're going around defrauding widows of funds asking them to invest in oil wells that don't exist. And you know, things like this actually happened back in those days. I don't know that it's based on a true story, but it could have been. Kevin Sorbo, of course, uh, is the lead 
con artist, along with uh, his co-star, John Ratzenberger. And, you know, they start off like running a medicine show, and then uh, Snake Oil Salesman teams up with Wildcat Oilman, who's had nothing but bad luck. And so they figure out whose husband has died. Maybe they think widows are easier to exploit and don't uh, understand the oil patch very well. And so they chance upon one whose husband has disappeared in Mexico and she's declared him dead. Which, by the way, historically, uh, the way that worked is if you had a spouse that was lost at sea or lost in any respect for seven years. He had run off and he hadn't come back after seven years. You may legally declare that person dead. And that's important. Excuse me. That's important because then the property passes to you as the widow and you can remarry legally without being a bigamist. So remember the widow's walk you've heard about? It's like it's actually a architectural feature. Those are women looking out for their husbands for seven years. They have to walk that widow's walk for seven years and then it's over. Anyway, back to this film, which is at Cinemark Theaters, by the way. Um, essentially, the plans of these con artists in the oil patch get foiled when the two of them fall in love with two of the widows they're defrauding. And uh, there's a subplot about the integration of the races here going on. Uh, you keep wondering, as they're taking advantage of people, will they ever get their comeuppance? All I'm going to tell you is, it ends in a really great scene in a church and another great scene in a courthouse. This is a very family-friendly film. Again, movieguy.com even gives it four stars. And they are a tough audience. If you don't know Movie Guide, I go to their gala uh, in the spring they will tell you every instance of foul language, every instance of nudity. There's no nudity, Jeffy. I'm sorry. I got his attention. I saw the eyes look up. When I said the word nudity, I saw that. Uh, don't get excited. This, this film is not for you, Jeffy. This is a different kind of film. Take your daughter. Um, according to movieguide.com, there's one strong usage of profanity. And a man takes the Lord's name in vain when he lies. Moreover, uh, the man <laughs> misuses the Lord's name when he pretends to be a Christian while trying to con people, but eventually repents and becomes a true believer. So it's okay. Uh, the the most the most uh, controversial moment of the film is innuendo about sex. In a, okay, listen again, Jeffy. Uh, in a couple scenes near the beginning of the film where a gushing oil well is called orgiastic. Be aware of that. If you're taking your kids, movieguide.com says, be aware. The point is, this is an oil-themed film. It's actually otherwise a family film. Um, In theaters now, Cinemark. Yes. All right, moving on. Did you know that... (laughs) I have here a graph showing the cost of an electric vehicle's battery. Would you believe that the cost of an electric vehicle battery in a Cadillac Escalade is $22,540? In a Dodge Ram, $1,500? 
The cost is $25,853. Total cost of the vehicle, $81,000. Apparently, the cheapest you can go with an electric vehicle battery is in the 2023 Ford Mustang Mach-E standard. The battery is $6,895. Total cost of the vehicle, $43,179. Now, compare this to the alternative would be not just a standard vehicle's battery, which, what, 70 bucks, But also, actually, the internal combustion engine, which can range dramatically between about $1,500 and $12,000, but typically far less than $5,000. So this is the comparison. These batteries can be as much as 31.92% of the cost of the actual vehicle. In the case of the 2025 Dodge Ram, 1500 And mind you, if you happen to get caught in a flood, you will be replacing these batteries. You will be paying more than the cost of a quality used vehicle to replace that battery. I have posted for you online in the past actual receipts of the the people who had to pay for a new electric battery and our EV battery. And um, this catches most people by surprise. Don't want you to be caught by surprise. Also, I've told you about how Really, these vehicles are just for warm weather climates. If you get into a freezing weather situation, they can lose as much as 30-some percent of their range. If you already had range anxiety, which wasn't even a term you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, well, if you live north of the Mason-Dixon line, you've got about 30% more range anxiety, and you might not even know that. People aren't told about these things. When they purchase these vehicles, they learn the hard way, which might be why they haven't caught on. Have you noticed how these things just don't take off? I've seen stories where makers of electric vehicles, such as Ford, um, are losing somewhere between sixty dollars and $73,000 a vehicle, depending on who you believe. Uh, but no matter what, that's ridiculous. If I were a stockholder... In Ford, I don't believe I am. I have some uh, ETFs that might hold some auto manufacturers. I don't know. I don't think I am. I would be really upset about this. You're supposed to feel good about the fact that the company is green. And you're investing green. Well, I hope you feel good because that's what you're going to get out of it. You're going to lose some cash. Not me. In fact, I've been... Uh, actually remiss in not picking up the phone and calling to put some more money into some strategic fossil fuel stocks. You know, if you're looking at the TV like I am right now, you come to studio, I can't avoid it. I typically try to avoid CNN and actually most uh, televised news. It's it's so depressing unless you hit the mute button. I like to watch my news on mute uh, or otherwise read it in the Wall Street Journal or elsewhere. Um, Wherever you see warfare in the Middle East, you know, unfortunately, that is really good for all of the oil producers in the Middle East. Almost always. Almost always. 
Uh, are you aware that now both Israel and the Palestinian Authority have natural gas off the coast? Even though the Gaza Strip is very small, right? It's like only five miles across. Um, it's a very small strip of land and a very nice strip of land, actually, uh, as far as the climate and geography is concerned. The Palestinians have natural gas that is attached to that land that they have leased to the British through 2024. And the Israelis have two monster natural gas fields off the coast of Israel that that were not um, economical or marketable in the past. And uh, they had a very hard time finding someone who would go in to develop those fields. That was way back whenever I worked on Capitol Hill, because any company capable of doing so was afraid they would risk their business with the Arabs. If they actually developed for the Israelis, the Arabs would want nothing to do with them. And of course, the Arabs are the main game in town. They've had the oil fields flowing there uh, since the 1930s, probably a little bit before. And the Persians, the Iranians, even before that, uh, all the way back to 1908 or so. So that's part of the game that's going on there that no one talks to you about for some reason. Um, The Brits are going to want to protect that lease off the Gaza Strip. They're a major player, too, in the Middle East. Reference World War II and the subsequent, and and one, uh, and the subsequent dividing up of the Middle East. Got to get a break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. 